Well, good morning. I told Toby that I'm, I'm not good with these things. There you go. <laughs> um, please open your Bibles in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 13. I have to say again, this is the second time, second time I'm preaching here that it is an honor to open the, the Word of God for you this morning. So, uh, again, open your Bibles in Acts 14, verses 44 to, 7, to 52. Verses 44 to 52. The Word of God says this. Verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women, women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet and protested against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, I want to thank you as Brother John Skelly come to my mind. I thank you for his life. Even though I didn't know him very well, I did have a couple of conversations with him. He was present in my presentation of the missions board. He was kind. He encouraged me. He spoke and he was interested in our mission to, to Chile. It's shocking to hear that he uh, is gone, but he is with you. He's in your presence and we are all thankful for that. Um, I pray for Judy and for the rest of the family that you will give them comfort and peace. And I ask you now, Lord, that you will give me assistance to preach your word faithfully and also uh, attentiveness to those who will listen to me, whether here on live stream on the internet. Prepare our hearts to receive your word and use it for the purpose that you have for each of us. May, the, may your name will be glorified in your preaching and your people edified. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I forget, I want to thank all of you who 
have brought food to us uh, these past two weeks. As you may know, Chila, my wife, got coronavirus. Uh, she's feeling much better now. She actually stay at home because she still has some very minor sy- uh, symptoms. So um, let me say that I'm sure that I gained some weight this past two weeks, so I'm blaming all of you <laughs> who brought some food. It was so delicious. I, I, we're very, very thankful for that. And I I like food, really. My brothers, uh, pastors, uh, uh, Pastor Chris, Pastor Scott, and Pastor Toby know this. Um, as you may know, after... We do or produce or record our podcast for our website. We usually go to lunch, the the four of us together. And I'm sure the the pastors know that I like uh, what kind of food I like. I like meat. I like um, soup. I really like soup. That's all I get the, every time I can. I only hate really spicy food. That I cannot take. And I particularly also love, love uh, shrimps. I really, I really like, uh, I really love shrimps. Uh, I remember when I was in seminary, I worked as a janitor or as a, or as a custodian uh, for a couple of years at Grace Community Church. People of that church had lots of meetings during the week, Bible stu- studies and things like that. And uh, part of our job was to um, to clean and organize uh, the different rooms in the building for their meetings, so they used to have to, to leave food for us, for the custodians, and one day someone left a whole plate of shrimps, it was a big plate, it was, un- it was untouched, those were big shrimps, shrimps, it was just, uh, so I, when I saw that, I was tempted to just grab a couple, but I said to myself, no, I'll, I'll better wait, it's not fair to, to eat before the, before the others. And, and I really, when I saw that plate, I remember saying to myself, thank you, Lord. Because at that particular day, I was very hungry. I forgot to bring food. Uh, and um, we were really close to, 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 to get our break. So I remember thanking, thanking the Lord for what I thought it was a, really a gracious gift from Him to me. So pretty soon we were called by the radio that it was time for a break. So I went back to this room to pick up the shrimps. And you know, to take them to our break room and to share that's the delicious food from the sea with my co-workers. But guess what? I couldn't find the shrimps. I asked one of my co-workers, have you seen the shrimps? I left them on this counter. He replied, yes, I threw them away. <laughs> Who wants to eat that gross thing? It's bad for you. That's what he said. I remember telling him, are you kidding me? i kill you, fool. <laughs> That's what I said. We were friends. We were just joking around. He was, a, he was a seminary student, and that's the way we used to joke with those guys. And I asked him, remember very clearly, like it was yesterday, why in the world would you throw away perfectly fine and delicious food? If you don't like it nor appreciate it, fine, but don't have, you don't have the right to deprive the rest of us of something that we appreciate and enjoy. Well, there are people like that, right? I don't know if you ever heard the expression, the dog in the manger, the dog in the manger. It's an expression that came from an old Greek fable. 
A dog in the manger is a person who speedfully refuses to let someone else benefit from something for which he or she can't enjoy or appreciate. While the majority of the Jews who heard Paul preach were like that, as we will about to see. These Jewish, Jewish people had no appreciation for the gospel that Paul preached. And not only opposed Paul and Barnabas, but they also were not permitting Gentiles to hear the gospel and to be saved. I have entitled my sermon, as you can read in your bulletin, God Saves His People Despite Intense Opposition. God Saves His People Despite Intense Opposition. So what we are going to do this morning is to go through this passage, explain the text, making some observations along the way, and at the end I'm going to give you five points of application that come right out of the text. So... Are you ready? Good. Here we go. Our passage this morning demands some context. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 13, you will see that it speaks about Paul and Barnabas' first missionary tour. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were at, at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Verse 2, very important to note, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then, when they they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, very important to note, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. In verses 6 to 12, we read about their encounter with Elimas, the magician a Jewish false prophet that opposed them as they were presenting the word of God to the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Paul rebuked Elimas, or Elimas, and as a result, he turned blind. Then the proconsul believed and was amazed at the teaching of the Lord done by Paul. If you go down to verse 14, uh, and we read that Paul and Barnabas arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. Verse 15, verse 15, after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent them, sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning his hand, said, and from verses 16 to 39, 39, Paul preaches a great, great sermon. He started by saying, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Then he proceeds to give a summary of the history of Israel, how God chose them and how he prospered then in Egypt. And he reminded of the time in the wilderness for 40 years and the conquest, conquest of Canaan. In verse 20, after these things, God gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. 
Verse 23, from the descendants of his men, of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Verse 26, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. This was such a great sermon. Then he tells them, Paul, about the death of Christ and the resurrection, and that all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things, from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. And finally, in verses 40 to 41, he warned them, saying, Therefore take heed, so that the things spoken of of in the prophets might not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. And verse 42, the immediate context of our sermon this morning, As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Wow, this is just very exciting. This is so great. But you agree, this is every preacher's dream. (laughs) You go to a church to preach, and after you're done, people come to you and tell you they want to hear more of your preaching about Christ. The people who heard Paul's sermon kept begging Paul and Barnabas, really. They repeatedly and continually urged them to come back. They wanted to hear them again as soon as the next Sabbath day. They wanted to hear more about forgiveness and justification through faith in Christ. Verse 43. Now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. As you see... Everything was going really, really well. When the congregation was dismissed, many of those who heard Paul preaching followed him and Barnabas out of the synagogue. These followers were divided in two groups, Jews, Jews by birth, and God-fearing proselytes. God-fearing proselytes were not Jews by birth, but they became devout converts, full converts to Judaism. They were members of the synagogue, they worshiped the God of Israel and became circumcised, received baptism, and offered sacrifices. Now, we read that many Jews and God-fearing proselytes are responding, at least externally, to the preaching of the gospel. And this is so great. This is great. Very, very positive so far. And notice what Paul and Barnabas said to them. They were urging them to continue in the grace of God. What did they say there? To warn them. They didn't assume they experienced conversion just because they show interest in the message of Christ. We all love to see people coming to Christ, don't we? So it can be tempting to give assurance of salvation to those who show interest in Christ or make some sort of profession of faith. We want to tell them welcome to the family of God. But not Paul and Barnabas. They knew better. They resisted the temptation to tell them that they were already Christians. They knew that, as one commentator put it, that those who are truly saved persevere and validate the reality of their salvation by continuing in the grace of God. 
Listen to what Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 1, 21, 23. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet Christ has now re reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before God holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And this is it. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not move away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The author of Hebrews expresses a similar idea. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Another commentator says as well, Paul and Barnabas hoped to prevent those who were intellectually convinced of the truth of the gospel, yet had stopped short of saving faith from reverting to legalism rather than embracing Christ completely. Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to continue in this mind, to persevere in their joyful response to the grace which God extended to them in the gospel. End quote. So again, this is very exciting. This is great. So far, so good. The interest of these people was real. How do we know that? Because they show up the following week. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. It doesn't mean that literally the entire city was there. This is hyperbole, but it means that a multitude gathered to hear Paul preach about God's work through Christ. Apparently, these people spread the news around the city. As a result, a great crowd of Gentiles came to the synagogue the next Sabbath. Although the synagogue itself would not have been able to hold such crowds, a commentator said, an overflow meeting would be possible if the spacious central area in the spacious central area of the town. This is great. This is really, really encouraging. But we have verse 45. But. Oh no. Here comes a contrast. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Notice that they were not just Jealous. They were filled with jealousy. When you're filled with something, it means that you're completely consumed by it. Under the control of it. Why did the Jews react that way? Why were they filled with jealousy? I think their jealousy had to do with a feeling of resentment or anger about the attention Paul and Barnabas were receiving. After all, if you think about it, there was a whole crowd listening to them. This use didn't have the crowds when they taught in the synagogue. They didn't have that attention. They didn't have that success that Paul and Barnabas were showing. We can understand that sentiment. When someone is more successful than us in something that we consider important, we become jealous, if we are honest. We feel that we deserve the same success. Of course, that is wrong and that is sinful, but it happens if we are sincere, we should recognize that we all have experienced some form of jealousy. I also believe that the Jews were being watchful and guarding their understanding of salvation. Think about it. 
Let's put ourselves in their shoes so a little bit so we can understand the situation. In their minds, the majority of the Jewish leaders are thinking along these lines. These outsiders are bringing a different message of salvation than the one we teach. And they're preaching it. And they're preaching it to our whole city. The whole city is listening to them. According to Acts 15, at the debate at the Council of Jerusalem, the Jews were teaching that unless Gentiles are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they cannot be saved. And that it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. But remember what Paul preached in his sermons, in his sermon, in uh, chapter 13, verses 30, 38 to 39. Remember that he said the following. Let it be known to you, brethren, that through Christ forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Don't you see it? In their minds, Paul was preaching a totally different uh, message of salvation to the people in their own town. What Paul was saying in the words of another commentator is that keeping the law of Moses did not free anyone from their sins, but the atoning death of Jesus completely satisfied the demands of God's law, making forgiveness of sins available to all who believe. Only the forgiveness Christ offers can be free, can free people from their sins. No wonder the Jews were angry. And naturally, they started to oppose Paul. Verse 45 continues. And they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. They were continually speaking against Paul's message and trying to refute him. And not only that, they were also blaspheming against him. They were slandering him, reviling him, speaking with contempt and insulting Paul. By doing this, even though unknowingly, they were guilty of blaspheming against God. And why is that? Because rejecting the apostles sent by Jesus is the same as rejecting both Jesus and the Father who sent them. In Acts 13.4, we read that Paul and Barnabas were sent by the Holy Spirit to the city. Remember that? In Luke 10.16, Jesus said to to his disciples, The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, how did Paul and Barnabas respond to this opposition? Far from being intimidated. Notice verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you repudiated and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. There are four important things to notice in this reply from Paul and Barnabas. First, God offered the plan of salvation to Jews Jews first. Matthew 10, 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was Jesus' commandment. 
Matthew 12, 24. But Jesus answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luke 24, 47. Jesus again, repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And one more, Romans 1.16. Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Although Paul, Paul's ministry, main ministry, was to Gentiles, he had a desire to see Jews saved. Read Romans 9.1-5 and then 10.1, and you see the heart of Paul for his people, the Jews. Paul preached to them first in many cities, many Jewish cities. Second, as a group, the Jews have taken God's word and have pushed, pushed, pushed it aside or repudiated. This word re- refers to pushing something away. Firstly, this is a graphic term for reject, rejection. Third, they have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Another way to describe what salvation is by emphasizing its content. So rejection and lack of salvation are their responsibility. The message of salvation is now associated with the hope of eternal life. So finally, Paul turns to the Gentiles. This is the first of several places in Acts where Paul goes to the Gentiles after receiving reje- being rejected by the most Jews. This turning away is not definite. Each place... Paul goes, he again start preaching to the Jews. And we will see more of that later. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth, to support that decision. They quoted from Isaiah 49.6 a well-known messianic prophecy. In that passage, God says about the Messiah, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. John MacArthur says the following about this passage, and I quote, The narrow-minded view of salvation as an exclusive Jewish possession is even foreign to the Old Testament which clearly taught that Messiah would be sent to the Gentiles as well. There was no justification for the hostile, negative response of the Jewish people to Gentile salvation, end quote. Here's a a footnote, my dear brothers and sisters. This is a very special verse to me. Many people think that the meaning of the name of my native country, Chile, means... The end of the world, of where the earth ends. It makes sense when you see a world globe. Chile is the last country in the south. Nothing comes really after it, in a sense. It was God's will that his world would reach to distant places like that, like my country, Chile. God would raise men after the apostle, apostles that someday would take the gospel in order to bring salvation to Chile. Even though there are many churches in Chile right now, and people are somehow familiar with the Bible and with the gospel and with Christ, I believe that Chileans have not experienced yet biblical preaching in a way that is massive and powerful. I don't think that we have experienced a true revival yet as a result of biblical, passionate, clear, and Calvinistic preaching yet. 
I hope the Lord will use me to bring salvation to my beloved country of Chile, the end of the world. There is a lot of work to be done down there. Let's continue with our text. Verse, the first part of verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, this is really good. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. The Gentiles who heard this message began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. These verbs are used to indicate an ongoing nature of the rejection of the Gentiles. They kept rejoicing. They kept glorifying the word of God. This is so encouraging. This is wonderful. And what follows is even better. Verse 48, part B. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Amazing. This is a reference to God's sovereign work over salvation, where God has assigned those who come to eternal life. It is God who does the appointing. Appointing. Notice. This phrase is one of the clearest statements in all the scriptures concerning God's sovereignty in salvation. Again, we see, as in many other passages, these twin towers. Remember? These two towers. God's sovereignty over salvation and human responsibility. It is God who saves. But at the same time, man, man has to believe. No one Jesus said plainly, No one come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. John 6.65 Paul described Christians as those who have been chosen by God. Colossians 3.12 2 Timothy 2.10 Titus 1.1 To the Thessalonians he wrote, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Second Thessalonians 2.13 Verse 49. More positive results. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. Despite intense opposition, the word of God was being spread, spread through the whole region. Antioch was turned upside down because Paul proclaimed God's word. That's what we do. We preach the word. Verse 50. Again, another contrast. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. This was a very clever move by the Jews. They used the religious and respected women of the city and the prominent men to persuade the authorities to expel Paul and Barnabas. Paul refers to this persecution in 2 Timothy 3.11. Listen. Persecutions and sufferings such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord rescued me. I think it's, it is possible that Paul and Barnabas were beaten with rods and whips. Paul said in 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians 11, 24, 25, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten, beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. It's not really your best life now, right? <laughs> 
Verse 41, verse 51. Now we see the reaction from Paul and Barnabas. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Paul, Paul and Barnabas left the city, shaking dust from their feet. This is a symbolic act against those who oppose them. This custom is a way to show that responsibility for an action is with the people or town. It portrays leaving defilement behind and moving on. In other words, no trace of their presence is left, even on their feet. This action was done in obedience of what Jesus told the disciples in Luke 9, 5. Listen. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They moved on to Iconium, a city located 90 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch. The rapid movement from city to city helped the gospel spread more rapidly across the world. It's, it is always like that throughout your history. Ironically, sometimes it is persecution that drives the movement and the expansion of the preaching of the gospel. You may expect that Paul and Barnabas were bitter, angry, disappointed. I think we were have the tendency to um, react that way. But how they did react? Were they bitter, angry, disappointed? No, not at all. Verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. There is an ongoing joy and full involvement with the Spirit. Rejection and persecution do not stop the gospel progress. Nor does intense opposition discourage the disciples. So to conclude, I want to give you five points of application that come right out of this passage, as I promised. If you have been sleeping through the sermon, <laughs> I forgive you. But pay attention, please, to these five points of application. Point number one. Expect opposition when you preach the word. Expect opposition, but also expect to be blessed by God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who were before you. Application number two. Don't be intimidated when you face opposition. Be bold. The Apostle Paul was very bold when he preached. Don't you agree? He stood against everything the world threw at him. In First Thessalonians 2, 1-2, he said, For you yourselves know, brethren... That our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. 
the question here is, where did Paul get this boldness? Answer, he prayed for boldness and asked others to pray for him so he would be bold. Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Listen. With all prayer and petition, pray that all times, at all times, in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Here it is. And pray on my, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amazing. You can have the same boldness as Paul. Pray and ask others to Pray for you, for boldness. It doesn't come naturally to us. Third application. Expect conversions when you preach the word. Expect conversions when you preach the word. God can use you to save those who have been appointed to eternal life. You don't have to be an eloquent preacher to preach the gospel. You just need to deliver the message faithfully. That's the key. I read an article the other day called Thank God for Unknown Preachers, the Conversions of Charles Spurgeon and John Owen. The author said the following, and I quote, God used a shoemaker to save the prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, and a farmer to save the prince of the English divines, John Owen. These conversions illustrate that God's saving power lies not in the eloquence of the preacher, but in the gospel. It matters not what the messenger looks like if the message he carries is from the king. Therefore, whether you are a rural pastor or an itinerant evangelist or a humble deacon, and I I add, or a mother or a grandfather or a college student or whoever you are, as long as you have the gospel on your lips, you herald a royal message that cannot fail. Both not in your own prominence, but in the Lord's preeminence. And who knows? It might just be that the next Spurgeon or Owen will sit under your preaching. I thought that was a fabulous thought. Romans 1.16 again. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek Two more. Number four. Move on to the next person. Move on to the next person. When you have done your job of preaching and praying for those closer to you, relatives, friends, co-workers, and they, as a result, push you away or become your enemies, move on to the next person. Others also need to hear the gospel. Don't stop hoping and praying for that person that has rejected the gospel. Don't give up. Never give up. God may work on that person's heart, person's heart, and he or she will be receptive to hear the gospel again. If an opportunity is presented to you again in the future, take advantage of it. Be ready. Even though Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet and left Pisidian Antioch, notice that they returned to visit a few months later. Acts 14.21 Last one. Number five. 
be continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Remember that to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a commandment. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, He will produce His fruit in you, of which joy is one manifestation. Galatians 5.22-23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. What can you do in order to continually, to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy? Your part is to continually study, meditate, trust, obey the Word of God. Pray, have fellowship with other believers, confess your sins, persevere in these things. I can guarantee you, based on the, what the Bible says, that God will lead you, cleanse you, forgive you. He will give you grace and make you wise and fill you with the Spirit. As a result, you will be able to accomplish His will in your life. You may say, I would love to accomplish the will of God in my life, but I'm too weak. Well, the truth is that all of us are weak. Remember the Apostle Peter. The Apostle Peter was weak. He denied the Lord three times. He was ashamed of Christ. But in the book of Acts, we see him boldly proclaiming Christ to thousands. He became a great preacher because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. If he was able to stand for Christ, so can you. You have the same word of God and the same spirit Peter had. Brothers brothers and sisters, please listen as I conclude this message. No pandemic, no sick, nor sickness, no tyrant, nor dictator have the power to stop the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing and nobody in the whole wide world can stop God from saving His elect in His time. In fact, when there is opposition and persecution, when the darkness is deeper, the light of the gospel shines brighter. Even when believers are killed, the gospel will advance and all the elect will be saved. Tertullian, the great apologist of the second century, said that, and quote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. End quote. God purifies his church and saves his elect in spectacular ways, especially when Satan does his best to persecute and kill believers. No matter what, every single person from whom Christ shed his precious blood will be saved in God's time. That's a precious hope that we have. Not one drop of his blood was wasted. In John 6.35, our Lord Jesus Christ said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up. On the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. What a precious, precious hope. I started this message by talking about 
my favorite foods. I want to hear this message by talking about spiritual food. Jesus said that he was the bread of life, that he or she who comes to him will not hunger. And he or she who believes in him will never thirst. Have you tasted Christ, the bread of life? If you haven't, what are you waiting for? This world has nothing to feed your soul and nothing to quench your spiritual thirst. Repent of your sins, put your trust in Christ, and He will give you eternal life. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us to be faithful in the proclamation of your word. Gives us the boldness that we need in the midst of persecution and opposition. Help us do this for your glory, for the benefit of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.